Our card this week is Renee McBreen, the two of spades from Florida. When Renee was 22 years old, her main goal was to provide a good life for her son, Caleb. But in September 1992, Renee was attacked in her Jacksonville, Florida home after hosting Caleb's third birthday party. While Renee's killer spared Caleb's life, their actions took away the person who loved him most and shattered his sense of safety and belonging for years to come. Today, a cold case detective is renewing the push for answers in Renee's murder, hoping to finally repair some of the damage that was done over 30 years ago. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. It was only about 8 a.m. in Colorado Springs the morning of September 21st, 1992. But Bill McBreen didn't think it'd be too early to call his wife and son back home in Jacksonville, Florida. It'd be pushing 10 there, and with it being a Monday, Bill figured they would be up and at him. Plus, morning calls were a regular thing for them since Bill was stationed in Colorado for the Navy. Even though he and Renee were separated, it was important to Bill to stay in regular contact with Caleb. So Bill dialed Renee's house number, and to his surprise, Caleb answered. And he immediately said something strange. I can't wake mommy. Caleb, who had just turned three the day before, didn't understand why his mom was asleep on the living room floor. It was weird, but again, kind of early, and Bill couldn't think too hard about it because he had to get to class. So he said he would call back after. Two and a half hours later, between 12 and 12.30 p.m. in Jacksonville, Bill called back. Caleb, who is 33 now, recalls this. He gets out, he calls again. I still can't wake up mom. At this point, apparently I was a little more aware of what was going on, and I'd said that she was dead. Um, and he called, you know, immediately he's calling her mom um, and saying, hey, you got to get over there. Caleb's saying he can't wake her up. In addition to calling Renee's mom, who lived in Jacksonville, Bill called police and asked for a welfare check. Sergeant Ray Reeves of the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office told our reporting team that an officer was dispatched to Renee's house right away. The officer got to the house, could see through uh, the, the door, through the windows there, I mean, that Caleb was there, could not see Renee. The officer um, made tried to get Caleb to come to the door and unlock it. The door, front door was locked and he could not. The back door was also locked and Caleb could not open the door. The police officer saw that there was a window that was slightly ajar. Um, he did note that there was debris, dust, and, um, and, and stuff on the window. So it had not been opened or uh, no one had come in or out of that window, I should say. So the officer went in through that window found Caleb to be okay, and then that's when they discovered Renee deceased. Renee was on the floor of the living room, near the couch. She had a bloody gash on her head, and there was blood on the floor nearby. So police knew right away that whatever had happened had been violent. She was wearing a T-shirt and underwear and had a blanket partially covering her. 
The patrol officer, a guy named J.A. Bradley, scooped up Caleb and took him to his patrol car where they waited for medical personnel and the homicide unit to arrive. Detectives got to the residential neighborhood of Murray Hill not long after, just before one. When detectives first went inside, the bloody scene in the living room was a stark contrast to the rest of the house. There's birthday party stuff still up at the house. There's birthday presents, there's wrapping paper, there's still signs up that say happy birthday. There were even remnants of birthday cake still on the kitchen table, almost as if the party had just happened. Detectives started to look around for more clues and took in the rest of the scene. The front door was deadbolted, and even though the back door had been locked when Officer Bradley got there, detectives noticed that it was one of those turn-lock doorknobs that you could push in from the inside and then the door would lock when you closed it on your way out. There was no forced entry to the house. There does not appear to be anything missing. His drawers weren't gone through. There wasn't things strewn about. There wasn't things kicked over. It wasn't as if something was being searched for. There wasn't missing money or anything like that. The initial thought when you hear no forced entry is that it must be someone Renee knew. Maybe that husband she was separated from. But it didn't take long for police to confirm Bill's alibi. You said you were in Colorado. We're going to make sure that that's happening. You know, pulling Navy records and making sure we have uh, documentation that you're there. All of those things. Uh, we, We trust people, but we verify. They verified, and it was on the up and up. Bill was in Colorado. But the second he found out about Renee's murder, he made arrangements to get to Florida to be with his son. With no clear motive yet, detectives were desperate for clues. And fortunately, the tiny house made relevant items easy to spot, like a crumpled up piece of paper next to Renee's body with a bloody palm print on it. The paper was sort of smushed into a piece of cloth, so both were bagged as evidence. According to old reporting by the Florida Times-Union newspaper, they also noticed that a leg of a table nearby was broken. Police dusted all around for fingerprints, but there was no weapon for them to process because there wasn't an obvious murder weapon anywhere to be found. Police wrapped crime scene tape around the outside of the house, and some officers started to canvas the neighborhood, while others prepared to notify and interview Renee's family members. Just then, a man showed up at the house asking what was going on. He told officers that he was Renee's boyfriend and he hadn't been able to get a hold of her. That man, who we'll call Aaron, said that he worked with Renee at a place called the Bikini Club. So they pulled him aside and told him what had happened, and they began asking him questions. You can't imagine who would have done this. Everyone liked her. She was very popular, never had any arguments with anyone other than some customers trying to be handsy, and they didn't allow that at the club. Detectives got a little more information out of Aaron, who was visibly distraught. He said he'd known about the party that Renee was throwing for her son, but he hadn't been there because he'd been working. So he couldn't provide anything helpful, like who was there? Did anything happen? I mean, at this point, they didn't know much about when Renee died, so anything would have helped. Like, they wondered if Renee had been murdered at her own toddler's birthday party, or if her attacker had come over after everyone had left. But Aaron couldn't help with any of that. And since he was cooperative and didn't seem to be hiding anything, and also wasn't providing anything super useful, 
they decided to let him go and just talk to him more later. You see, they had someone more pressing to talk to. The one person who was for sure there in the home when Renee was killed, little Caleb. We do things a little differently now than in 1992, but Caleb was questioned, not by patrol officers, but by the child protection team. He was interviewed, DCF. They're forensic investigators where they know, they specifically ask children questions under the age of 12. They're not leading questions, so it isn't that a patrolman's like, hey, who did this? That kind of a thing. So these are separate. He was taken there. And he was unable to recall. The only thing he did remember seeing was he just said, a big man. He said there was a big man fighting with mommy. Investigation-wise, Caleb didn't have anything else to offer up. Even today, his recollection is just based off of what he's been told over the years. There's just so much there to unpack of what's going through your mind. What makes you do that to a woman? Did you black out and then when you came to it was too late? Did you? I just, I, I don't know. That was it. And he's tried to remember back, obviously, with the trauma of seeing something like that. Um, even when I met with him, tried, if there's anything else you can remember, not trying to re-traumatize him, but just ask him to walk back through that again. Um, and he doesn't. He doesn't even remember saying that. During canvassing and with the benefit of hindsight, one neighbor told police that they'd seen a big brown van at Renee's house the day before, and they hadn't recognized it. The neighbor said that what they saw in the van, the person driving, was a white male, maybe olive complexion, maybe Hispanic, maybe just tanned Florida. It could just be that as well. Um, But there was a white male that was driving that. Unknown if that was related or not, but there was a van in the area. Since there had been a birthday party at the house, police figured that it wouldn't have been weird for lots of cars to have been parked there, maybe ones that weren't normally there. But they noted it anyway, and they'd follow up on it later. Over the next day, neighbors told police and newspaper reporters that Renee had just moved into that house a few months prior, so they didn't know her super well. They had just seen her and Caleb together in the neighborhood. A few other neighbors told the Florida Times Union back in 92 that they thought they had heard maybe a man and a woman arguing in the home or just outside of the home Sunday morning. But Detective Reeves wasn't sure if those accounts were ever verified. As police were notifying Renee's mom and other immediate family members of her death, they were also gathering names of people who had been at the party. All of the people tracked down that first day said it had been a nice, wholesome celebration with cake and presents, and there hadn't been a fight or tension or anything. They were able to piece together that there had been maybe 20-some people at the party, which had started Sunday afternoon. Attendees were Renee's relatives, friends, co-workers, and even some of their young kids, too. Police began tracking them all down and talking with them one by one. And they got everyone's fingerprints. But gathering if and when everyone actually left or if anyone else came by, that was a little harder. Everybody didn't know who was the last person to leave, but that all indications within those last few people left eight or nine that night. So we don't know. But that time frame, specifically. Detective Reeves said he has reason to believe that Caleb was already asleep by the time the last partygoers left Renee's house. That meant that she was either killed late Sunday night or early Monday morning. There are some unverified reports online that said 
after the birthday party, Renee, Caleb, and a few family members went to a nearby Dunkin' Donuts at around like 9.30 p.m., and that Renee and Caleb went home alone from the coffee shop. But Detective Reeves said that he hadn't ever read about the late-night donut run, so who knows if that's really true or where that story originated. If this is real and anyone out there has info about this and maybe you're just assuming police know, don't. Otherwise, it's just getting chalked up to rumor. Renee's autopsy was done the next day, and it revealed that she had died of blunt force trauma to the head. It wasn't clear if she had been sexually assaulted, but a kit was done. Detective Reeves said evidence was preserved from the kit, so that would lead one to assume that they found semen, maybe, or some sort of biological evidence, but he wouldn't confirm what. I don't know if it's a sexual assault or if she was there with somebody and then this happened afterwards. We, we don't know. So there was the presence of semen. I don't know. I, I can't say to what extent, like recent or that there was stuff that's happened in the last 24 or 48 hours. So they are working that. The exam also showed that Renee had been totally sober when she died. No drugs or alcohol in her system, which wasn't surprising to investigators because they didn't find any substances inside her house either. But other results from the exam were surprising because the autopsy revealed that Renee had been pregnant. On September 23rd of 92, the Florida Times-Union ran a story with the headline, Slain Woman Was Pregnant, asserting that she was two months along. It also featured a photo of Caleb with his dad, Bill McBreen, who had just gotten to Jacksonville from Colorado. That same story featured an interview with Renee's sister, Shannon, who told the newspaper that she had been at Caleb's birthday party. And the last time she saw her sister was when she left her house at around 6.30 Sunday evening. Shannon also said that Renee had been, quote, involved in a recent feud with a male acquaintance about her unborn child and feared that the man wanted to prevent her from having the baby, end quote. There was a lot of speculation like that relayed to police and reporters in the days after Renee's death. Renee's husband, Bill, said that he had been away in Colorado for at least six months, and he didn't even know about the pregnancy. But it didn't seem like Bill was shocked by the news because, again, they were separated, and he admitted that they were both openly seeing other people. They had had a rocky period. They were trying to reestablish their relationship and work on that. He was very honest with them about that. Hey, look, yeah, we'd seen other people, and we were having a hard time, but we We knew that this time apart was going to be good and we were going to work on the relationship. Now, the question in your mind is the next logical question to ask. Well, who's the father? Police would love to know. They tried um, multiple ways through the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and also the FBI and also private labs to have the baby tested um, to see if they could determine who was the father. That is not a possibility. Back then, uh, things were stored in formaldehyde, and so that destroyed everything. Now, they couldn't prove who the father was, but that doesn't mean no one was coming forward. I mean, remember Aaron, the man who showed up at Renee's house claiming to be her boyfriend? 
Police now had some more questions for him. And when they went and talked to him right away, he's like, yeah, the baby's mine. But there were other parts of the rumor that he disputed. Aaron says that Renee was pregnant and that he was the father and that he did not want her to have an abortion and that she was going to have the baby. Aaron said that he and Renee were happy together. He wouldn't want to do anything to hurt her. Plus, he offered up an alibi. He reiterated that he had been at the Bikini Club working all night on Sunday. So detectives made their way to the club to interview other employees there. And all of them backed up Aaron's story. He was there all Sunday night into Monday up until the moment he went to Renee's and found police there. But police had more questions for their co-workers. Were there any fights here? Did she have any fights with anybody who came in? Did somebody owe her money? Did she owe somebody? All of those natural questions that you begin asking. Renee was a waitress and a dancer at the club, and she got along with her co-workers and customers, even the ones who tried to play grab-ass, which was strictly off-limits. Liked her. She didn't argue or fight with anyone other than you know, some, some people who got handsy. Wasn't in any disagreements with anyone. Loved her son uh, immensely and was trying to take care of him and a better life um, for him. And, you know, he was her world. And just to be clear, there was no indication that Renee was doing anything more than dancing at the club. Detectives say they have zero reason to believe that she ever engaged in sex work or took customers home or anything like that. And Renee's co-workers couldn't recall her being threatened by anyone or stalked or anything. Because she was very popular, there, there was then also another whole network of people to begin questioning and talking to and finding out where they were. And then getting there, and people were cooperative on getting their fingerprints so that they could compare. By the time police had interviewed those who were at Caleb's birthday party and Renee's co-workers from the club, they had 37 different fingerprints to compare to the prints that they found at her house. But... Reeves said that none of those were a match, which is wild if you think about it, because I'm sure the people who were at Caleb's birthday party touched a bunch of stuff around the house. But Detective Reeves didn't want to go into detail about where exactly they lifted the prints from and how they went about comparing all of them. He just said that none of them were a match to the party guests or Renee's co-workers who had been interviewed and fingerprinted. Anyways, as if they weren't dealing with enough possible witnesses, through all of those interviews, police learned that Renee had a roommate, a friend named Diana. How are they just learning about someone who lived in her house? <laughs> it seems weird, right? But the answer is actually pretty mundane. She had apparently been out of state with a friend when Renee was murdered. And when they tracked her down, she didn't have anything super helpful for them to go on. So with nearly 40 potential witnesses involved in Renee's investigation, it was a lot of mud for detectives to wade through because there was just so much speculation in the weeks and months after her murder. The family was really torn on this, and so you had people pointing their fingers at all kinds of people that it could have been. Well, it certainly was this. Most all of those were deemed it wasn't accurate, that wasn't the case. Bill was cleared as a suspect early on since he'd been more than halfway across the country. And he helped fill detectives in on what Renee's life had been like. Bill was much older than Renee, but he said that they'd been in love when they got married two years before. 
and they were very happy in the beginning. Caleb has some old photos from that time, and here's what he gathered. She wanted to be a mom, but she didn't want to be uh, a military wife who got stuck living in Colorado Springs while he's on boat or living in San Diego alone. So that was a big part of their marriage was, you know, she wanted to be at home in Jacksonville with her mom and her sister, and he expected her to kind of go, you know, they were married, go with me. So that was always a tough thing for them. After Renee was killed, Caleb went to live with his dad in Colorado. But soon after, Bill asked the Navy to send him back to Florida. He said, look, when I finish school, you got to put me back in Jacksonville. Caleb needs his family. I need a support system. Like, I can't raise him by myself. So he moves back to Jacksonville and essentially becomes obsessed. Um, He is trying to figure out what happened. And he's going to nightclubs. You know, he's going to work all day at the Navy, coming home, seeing me, feeding me dinner, giving me to Denise, uh, my godmom. Like, keep him, you know, I'm going to go out and ask questions. He ends up going to a club one night, and he's asking people, you know, did you know Renee? Do you know what happened to Renee? And he walks out of the club, and he gets jumped, and that was the end of it. Um, he kind of realized at that point, like, you know, I, I, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get hurt. I've got a son to raise. Caleb said Bill thought someone was trying to send him a message to stop looking into Renee's murder. So he did for their safety. Over the next several months, investigators kept doing interviews with Renee's friends and family members and colleagues, and they even tried following up on that brown van lead. But it didn't turn up anything. The investigation needed a break now more than ever. And by God, they got one. It was around this time that all of the blood tests came back. Now, disappointingly, they showed that all of the blood in the house belonged to Renee, But remember that bloody palm print found on a crumpled piece of paper and cloth near her body? Well, that was also Renee's blood, but it was not Renee's palm print. No one else. Paramedics didn't touch it. The police officer didn't touch it. That leaves one reasonable possibility. That palm print belongs to Renee's killer. Detective Reeves said he thinks that the killer used the paper and cloth to wrap around the murder weapon in order to not leave fingerprints behind. Now, Detective Reeves wouldn't tell us what investigators believed the murder weapon was. He just said that they never found it. So the killer likely took it with them, accidentally leaving behind their palm print. Now, this is great evidence, but useless until police get a match either in a database or by direct comparison, which to this day, they still never have. For years after this, not a whole lot happened in Renee's case. Not to take away from what they were doing, the the detective who got the case originally retired six months after she passed away. I think the handoff, I think police often will tell you if, if you inherit a case, You don't have all that knowledge, you know, to keep chasing it. I think after that was handed off, it was kind of, you know, it's been six months, we're not going to figure it out. It is what it is. Renee's murder and the mystery surrounding it left most of her family broken. Caleb lived with his dad for several years after, but there was this huge void in their life. He suffered a lot of tragedies that year on top of what happened to Renee, and it kind of stuck with him. I think the damage that can be done from something like that isn't something you see externally. And men his age were always told, don't talk about things. And I think that kind of hindered being able to process it and being able to move on. 
By the time Caleb was nine, he was running away and getting into trouble. He said he was in and out of Child Protective Services custody, and when he turned 12, his family put him in a military school. But about a year in, the school got shut down and parents were told to come get their kids. But no one showed up to get Caleb. So he ran away. I was so mad at her for dying, for putting herself in a spot to put me in foster care and some other bad spots. I wish like hell someone would have told 14-year-old me it wasn't her fault. I genuinely, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I had so much disdain because of the way I grew up and I felt like it was her fault. Victim blaming, I guess. But as a kid, I kept telling myself, if you didn't make bad decisions, I wouldn't be in a military school. I wouldn't be in you know, a youth crisis center. I wouldn't be in a foster care home. It wasn't until the last 10 years I finally found some peace and found it's not her fault. Caleb said by the time he was a teenager, he was in foster care and eventually ended up in Texas by way of a foster family. The state of Florida hadn't kept tabs on him, and Caleb's first foster mom kicked him out after a few years. So by the time he was 15, he found himself working on a ranch in Texas. And the family there embraced him, nurtured him, and eventually adopted him. So they actually formally adopted me when I was 17. And I kept telling them, like, you don't have to do that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm about to age out anyways. And they're like, no, you're a kid. That adoption did more than just change Caleb's last name from McBreen to Flanagan. His adoptive mother encouraged him to open up about his life, and the process was therapeutic and eye-opening. But it didn't happen overnight. Because of the dysfunction in his childhood and adults trying to protect him, Caleb grew up not knowing a ton about his mom or the truth behind what really happened to her. They had all agreed to lie to me and, and not lie like with intention of malice. But one of them told me my mom was accidentally murdered. One of them told me that basically she was roughed up a little bit. She accidentally hit her head too hard. Um, so growing up, I had like nine different stories that I kind of like tried to piece together a little bit. I just don't understand. I feel like more people know what happened to her. I feel like it's a, it's a public thing in a circle of people that they've just held to themselves for years. At about the same time that Caleb was finding himself in Texas and starting to ask questions about what really happened to his mom, police were getting their first big break in 13 years. In 2005, a call came in to the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. On the other end of the line was a woman who said that she had just divorced a man who killed Renee McBreen. He confessed to her that he killed Renee and that it was an accident. She didn't give an indication as to how. You know, they questioned her about, was she stabbed? Was she shot? Was she strangled? All those. And she said, I, he didn't say. And I didn't ask. He just happened to say this almost like he was uh, very remorseful or regretful that this happened. And she said, I didn't push it. I didn't ask him anything else about it. And um, he only said it the one time. The man, who we were asked to refer to as Paul, had never before been on police's radar for Renee's murder. But in 2005, they tracked him down pretty fast because he was in jail for something unrelated. So they went and talked to him, and it turns out he was a regular at the Bikini Club back in the early 90s. 
He was in jail, so they found him quite easily and interviewed him and said, I know her 100%, knew her from here, had known her for a while, but we weren't an item, we weren't sleeping together, I wasn't there, I didn't kill her. Paul had an extensive criminal history, but nothing violent, really, mostly drugs and burglary. He said that he couldn't recall where he was on September 20th or 21st, 1992, but he remembered finding out about Renee's murder a few weeks later during a visit to the Bikini Club. So detectives went back and interviewed some of the people from the club to see if they could find anything else out about Paul. He was just a regular at the club, and there wasn't any indication that they had any kind of a relationship other than somebody else who came to the club, but there was plenty of those people, so there wasn't any. Even the family in their interviews didn't indicate that, that they even knew who it was or that she didn't have a connection with. It wasn't a name that they gave out, and they gave out several names initially. Detectives worked to follow up even more by interviewing the tipster, which was Paul's ex-wife, a few times, and they even interviewed Paul again. His ex's story remained the same about him confessing out of the blue when they were married. But Paul still denied it at every chance he got. Now, police did take his fingerprints, but so far they haven't matched any to the ones from the crime scene. But that doesn't mean nothing came of working this angle. When this all came up in 2005, it gave police a new reason to look back at old evidence using new technology. So they took some old fingernail scrapings and sent them off for testing. And sure enough, they got some unknown DNA. There was a partial that was, but it wasn't enough to be entered into the CODIS system at that time. But again, that testing is so different from now, we're re-looking at those items. Not much else happened in Renee's case after 2005. And by 2019, Paul, who was their latest person of interest, had died. In 2021, Detective Reeves took over the case. And since then, he's been focusing on trying to get a DNA breakthrough. Sexual assault kits were tested. Clothing items were tested. Fingernail scrapings are being tested again. She had on some fake nails. And so part of that is we're working through a lot of those kind of things again in the submission stage or resubmitting items. Sometimes you go and you look through these old photographs because we can't go back out and recreate the scene, but we can look through the photographs and go, wait a minute, this is in this picture. Was this collected? And if so, let's give this a shot. Detective Reeves has also promised to keep testing the bloody palm print found at the scene. And uh, as a matter of fact, in November, I reran that again. And it, it is going to continue to go, to hit, uh, if we get something. But it's not. We have no hit. Which is frustrating. Last year, a Florida-based organization called Project Cold Case published a write-up about Renee's case in collaboration with a University of North Florida journalism class, hoping to drum up some publicity. Project Cold Case's interest is actually what gave Caleb a renewed curiosity in the truth surrounding his mom's death, though he was wary at first. I have a life, and I don't mean that at all against Renee. It was just like I've got a daughter and a son, and I coach softball, and I've got a good job, and I've got a great wife, and it's very important to me to keep that together. And I was very worried that if all this stuff came back up, it would 
I mean, it's, you know, it's emotional. It's tough to, to tear up and go through and deal with. So I was very hesitant to get involved because I was very scared. I would shock myself back to, you know, being that 15 year old kid. As a young adult, Caleb's disassociation with the case ran deep. It's what he had to do to get his life on track. Because he didn't have any memories from the actual crime scene, it was hard for him to fathom that he was even there when Renee was murdered. I mean, even with my mom, I'd be like, that poor woman. I had a real hard time being like, that's me or that's my mom. It was very much like that poor kid and that poor woman. And it still is. It's that way in the sense of like, it did happen to me. But I think now that I'm an adult with two kids and a wife, I look at it more as she just didn't have enough. I think that's what kind of, I don't want to say pisses me off, but it definitely, seeing how women were portrayed back then and even today, and, you know, when something like this happens and you read the articles, there's not more about what could have been done to help her, who was there for her, who wasn't there for her, what resources she had. Instead, it's like she worked at, you know, a dance club. Caleb overcame a lot and basically had to grow up and reinvent himself after his mom's murder put his life on a bumpy path. But he's grateful that today he's got the capacity to reflect on it all. And he hopes that him making space in his life for the investigation will help bring answers. But still, none of that erases the pain of losing his mom, that person who loved him the most in the world. To find out that, like, it was that violent of a murder and you had a three-year-old, I mean, like, her cake was still on the table. My cake was still on the table. There were still balloons. There were still my birthday gifts in the kitchen. What in the f*** is wrong with someone to do that to a mom with a cake, with birthday, you know? And most likely that person was at the party that day. Police have what they need evidence-wise to hopefully solve Renee's case soon using DNA. They're working today to try and do some direct comparison testing between their persons of interest and the unknown DNA found under Renee's fingernails all those years ago. But something they've always lacked is motive. Of all of the people they interviewed in the days after Renee's death, and even years later, no one had a real motive to kill her. So everyone is left speculating about the criminal's behavior. Who would Renee have opened the door for late at night wearing just a T-shirt? Who would kill her knowing that they were leaving her son who was asleep in the next room without a mom? What does it tell you about the killer or killers that they did not harm Caleb? So because Caleb, it was known that he was there, it's speculation, but they know there's some kind of compassion and that maybe too much of a word because you just murdered someone, but you didn't harm the child that was there, that you knew was there. They knew Caleb maybe was too young to be able to explain who you are. Caleb and Renee's other loved ones deserve to know who killed her and why. Police are so close to solving her case, but every piece of information is important. So if you know anything, about Caleb's birthday party or the reported trip to Dunkin' Donuts that Renee and Caleb might have taken just before her murder or anything else about the 1992 murder of Renee McBreen, please call the Jacksonville, Florida Sheriff's Office at 904-630-0500. 
and ask for Detective Ray Reeves. The Deck is an Audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? (laughs) 